0: We're going to start out having a little bit of fun today on Let Me Be Frank. Bishop Caggiano, as you may know, is an avid follower of astronomy. And just recently, NASA released some incredible pictures from the James Webb Telescope. So we're going to talk about that for the first segment. In the second segment, we'll talk about the Holy Father's new apostolic letter on the liturgy. So keep it right here. We're on your radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM. And always at hand on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. If you don't have the app, you can get it at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. And thank you very much to our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. All right, welcome back everybody to Let Me Be Frank. On the Veritas Catholic Network, it is, I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano.
1: Steve, good to see you. Excellency. Uh, see. I great can't to... see you today recording for some reason.
0: <laughs> well, that's another story. <laughs> I, yeah, you look like the, uh, the colored bars on uh, the TV yes, when it doesn't work. Yes, when the TV goes out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, uh, so we do have some serious stuff to get to in the second half of the show. Mm-hmm. but uh, but before we get to that stuff, mm-hmm. I-, I know, and many of our listeners know that you are an avid follower of astronomy mm-hmm. and recently NASA released some incredible images from the James Webb telescope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear you know your take on it. maybe we start with what is the James Webb
1: telescope and then yeah, it's, uh, well, first of all, let's t- just take a step back. I, I am very much on a, on a personal level love astronomy because I love to have my mind stretched, sometimes blown away, but stretched. You know, uh, if when you look at astronomy, you look at, you're facing limit concepts that for theology, we do all the time. But in science, uh, scientists find it very difficult at times to make sense of that. Which is why I'm partially interested in it, because as you and I have chatted over the years about this, I think astronomy is one of the great avenues to engage in the evangelization of people in general, young people in particular. So, apart from what's going on now with the with the uh, James Webb Space Telescope, which we'll get to in a second, just to remind our listeners and myself included, that. If you look at the average world in which we live, the typical world, right, it is self-consumed. We've spoken many times about how subjective it is, how self-absorbed it is. You know, it's funny, you drive along the street and people are so self-absorbed looking at their phones that they don't even look where they're going. They, they will walk literally into traffic and not even know it. So yes. our worlds have become, in some sense, very small because they're at our judgment and our direction right? Then when you add to that, you know, the spiritual, my life is all about me, that Bishop Barron made famous a few years ago. When you put yourself in, into, into astronomy, and now that we are seeing images that literally are absolutely amazing, a lot of that gets challenged. You know, it's been a few weeks since these photos have, have come out, and I've been watching, you know, following along, and there was an article that was written by a fairly young man whose name I will not mention. That was on a blog that was then picked up by the news media in his reaction to the first five images that came out of the James Webb Telescope. And the article was so depressing. And it was depressing because this young man was sharing the angst, the anxiety he felt at some of what was being provoked by the images, not knowing how to handle the fact that he could now really be so small in a universe so big that is way beyond what he could ever imagine, comprehend, or more importantly, control. Right. And it was like an existential moment of profound anxiety, and he ended the article by saying, I've had enough, it's time to go back to Netflix. Oh my gosh. All right, so that young man, if he had a mentor who would guide him and say, okay, you know, it's unsettling for everyone, but let's go deeper and say, ask some more fundamental questions, is that we are here, we are here, and we have life, and we have the ability to understand and the ability to love in a cosmos that big, One could say that it's just an accident, but one could also say it's a deliberate act of a benevolent, loving power greater than even the greatest things we see about the universe, precisely because we have infinite value, Mm. because we are special, and if you consider the fact that the theologians who say the creation was created the way it was specifically so that humanity could specifically be created in its own specific way to receive the very life of God who created it all in the first place. It is the opposite of the man's reaction. But you need the guide and the context to help you to, to see it from a different perspective. Because abandoning what the world is telling us without an alternative can be very scary. We're the alternative, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I love astronomy because it forces people. You know, it's like the pandemic. If I could draw a, a very silly analogy, we for gen, a generation tried to show people our Catholic schools and asked them to take a second look at Catholic schools, and they didn't do it because there was inertia, because they were comfortable, because they didn't want to upset their kids, because they were, you know, they were very familiar with what they had. And then the pandemic came, what did it do? It just drew us into a tizzy. So people were forced to say, well, what do I do? And those who came to our Catholic schools, many of them liked what they saw. They were forced to take the second look. And when they actually did it, they're grateful. And they stayed. So this is forcing everyone who goes into it to take a second look at all the presumptions they have of life. Okay, end of homily. That's why I (laughs) love this stuff. Okay. Well, it, w- it sounds like
0: it was a wake-up call for that young man that
1: he's not the center of the universe, right? But but is there anybody in his life who could help him see yeah. the alternative? Is what I wonder about. Yeah. Right. Gosh. Because in the end, it's all about wonder and awe, the seventh gift of the Holy Spirit. It's to see the grandeur, the greatness, to see the inf- to, to to struggle with the idea of infinity, and not be overwhelmed by it but to just be fascinated by it, right? To be able to sense that you do have a place and it's a benevolent place, it's a safe place, it's a loving place, but it's bigger than me. Yeah. Right? And and lots of us have lost that sense of being fascinated or being blown away, if we would say, by something, whoa, (laughs) wait, 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 how do I even respond to something like this? Yeah. So the James Webb Telescope, I'm sorry, you going to say something? No, 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 please, Excellency, James Webb. No, so the James James Webb is named after an astronomer. I believe he was most prominent in the 1960s. He had a controversial background, but we'll leave it at that. And this telescope is a million miles out of the orbit of the Earth, from the Earth. It is in a place where um, it is extraordinarily cold. It has, um, if I'm not mistaken, it has a diameter five times larger than any other telescope ever created by humanity. Hmm. And it can peer, without interference from the Earth, it could peer into the different spectrum of light that is not visible to the human eye. But because of the way science can interpret those spectrums of light can give us a view, an image of light that we've never seen before, farther away than we could ever have imagined, in clarity that you couldn't even possibly have believed 10 years ago. It's just an extraordinary feat of technology that took six months to calibrate, it took 10 years to create, it was $10 billion in cost, and 78% of all Americans believe it was was all money well spent Hmm. in the latest surveys. Precisely because of what it's revealing to us.
0: Yeah.
1: So you may remember a couple of weeks ago, the president revealed one of the five images one day before, because I guess he wanted to get the limelight and, you know, kind (laughs) of like, right. And it was uh, a very large galaxy. It was the deepest image ever received in the universe. So it was a galaxy that scientists have hypothesized now and are looking for peer review to confirm. A galaxy that is 13.3 billion light years away in its light, which means we are receiving light that's 13.3 billion years old, or the galaxy is only 300 million years after the Big Bang. Wow. Now, interesting, two things, very interesting. Number one, very interesting. Most people need to remember that when the singularity, whatever we call that, blew up in however that happened, the initial universe was still dark. There was no light. And it was only when through the forces of gravity and dark energy... That, those, that that the gases that were created began to coalesce, that the first stars ignited. So again, from a point of faith, we hear in the book of Genesis that God created the light. Well, that's exactly what happened in what they call the cosmic dawn. So there was a period when the universe first blew into existence where there was no light. So even if it's 300 million years, we, I'm not sure how much farther back we could go because there would be no light to see. Uh, yeah. So you're getting to the very edges of what the Big Bang would have created when light actually is. But I now look at Genesis, I read Genesis, and I think to myself, my goodness, (laughs) in the inspiration of the sacred writers from the Holy Spirit, there was a moment when light was born. Mm. And who guided that, but not the creator of it all? Right? Wow. But that's first, but the second thing is interesting, is that... Uh, We could do 10 podcasts on this. The other (laughs) thing I find interesting is that the light is 13.3 billion light years away. But when they actually measured, and don't ask me how they do this, because I don't understand it completely, the actual distance, right, that galaxy is over 39 billion light years away. Huh. You may say, well, how could that possibly be? Well, the theorem that came from it is that in fact, you can travel faster than the speed of light if you are space, but not if you are matter. Which means space is expanding faster than the speed of light. And what does that mean? That means that what is visible to us now A million years from now, some things visible to us will no longer be visible to us because they'll be outside the visible universe. Hmm. And there's a part of the universe outside the visible universe that we will never see and never get to. And that will continue to expand because things are moving further and further away, faster and faster in space. Now, does that blow your mind? Does that give you a headache? my head is hurting right now, <laughs> <laughs> right? So that means the universe is expanding and some the latest theories are, again, based, and this is just confirmed by what James Webb is saying. So why it's so revolutionary is that some of what we're seeing is confirming some of these theories and there's gonna be years and years and years of analysis that's gonna confirm a heck of a lot more. But the universe, if the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light, then right now there is the computation that the universe is 90 billion light years across of which we could not see two thirds of ever. We will never see it. So don't you wonder what's there? But others can, right? If there is other life somewhere else, they can and they may not be able to see us. Wow. Depending on where they are. And you may say, well, Bishop, you just said something like, is that heredity? I mean, is that heresy to say that there could be life on another planet? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because it would be ultimate hubris to think that we're the only life in all the universe. But it equally doesn't challenge my Christian faith because I believe Christ is the creator with his Father and the Spirit. And I believe he is the definitive savior of all creation, not just humanity. So in the end, how that salvation has worked out and how they have come to know Christ, well I have no idea. But that they would have to to be saved, yeah. That's Christian revelation. So I just think it's amazing. It's just, the whole thing is just absolutely amazing to me. How just these few images. So what are the other images, okay? So you have, Stefan's Quintet, which are these five galaxies appearing as if they are dancing, but actually they are colliding with each other. And so you have thousands of, of um, natural. i take that back. You have millions, perhaps billions of stars interacting with hundreds and hundreds of billions of planets, literally forming into, eventually in some point in time, a single galaxy from five. Right? And then you have the, sun, the Southern Ring Nebula, which a lot of people, I'm sure, have seen, which is this beautiful, I'm sure you did too, like this brownish, bluish yes. cloud. Yeah. Right? And that cloud are the gases that coalesce to form stars. So that's what the universe looked like after the singularity blew up. And all of that. Con- so I think to myself, God is infinite, God is eternal. All of that, everything I just described, um, happened for God in a single instant. See, for God, there is no past and there is no future. God is eternal. That means everything is now for God. That alone makes me feel very small Mm. before God. And then I think to myself, that God took on a human life in Jesus Christ. What's the human response then to Jesus and the claim we have in him? I mean, it defies description. It defies language. It defies anything I could express to think that God who created all this, has guided all this, continues to, came into our world. Like us. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's astonishing. It, which is absolutely astonishing. And it's so bold a claim in some ways that maybe in light of astronomy, people who dismiss it, who are unthinking secularists, who are just consumed with Netflix maybe this is the opportunity to give them a a little shake and say, whoa, 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 there is much more here, ladies and gentlemen, for you to reflect on. Yes. And Steve, uh, uh, as we kind of summarize this conversation, there's two things I just want to point out. The first, again, to, to stretch the mind, that image that we spoke about, that first image that was produced, is the equivalent of what is behind a single grain of sand... That you could hold on the tip of your finger and hold out your hand right in front of your face. So, whatever is hidden by that one grain of sand is what's reflected in that first picture with literally millions of galaxies. So, could you imagine how big the universe is? Number one. Number two, uh, recently, I, you know, again, in these shows that I've been watching, it's fascinating that with the idea now that the universe is expanding eternally. And the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. And of course, expanding eternally raises a question that scientists don't want to ask, which is, what does that really mean? Yeah. Okay. But there will come a day, there could come a day, when at night, when you look up into the sky, you will see no stars. Because everything will have traveled so far away that... There would be no light in oh the night word. sky. And then you look at the book of Revelation and you think about, you know, the coming of the judgment, right, of where the light will be perpetual in heaven and everything else will be in darkness. It's fascinating. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh
0: Even my science tells us that. <laughs> 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 Uh, wow. It, it the discovery of things mm-hmm. like this or the um the 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 dissemination of knowledge of things like this and, and you know, images like this, it really if it doesn't get you to like that young man that you referenced in the beginning, I mean oh, yeah. so Ooh. I I mentioned to you once, Excellency, that I recently finished a book um that urges us as Catholics to see the world around us through a sacramental view, which they mm-hmm. mean including the visible and the invisible. It's mm-hmm. bigger than what we can imagine. There's more stuff going on than we, than we can see versus uh, the materialist scientific view, which only sees the visible world, which is what so much of the world today is trapped in this limited view.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly, without a doubt. You know, this whole idea that there is dark energy is a hypothesis because nobody actually knows what it is. But it is presumed to exist because that's the only explanation that allows the universe to be expanding faster than the speed of light. Right? Mm -hmm. And yet, it is, in many ways, challenging the laws of physics. So, again, to your point, we say there are laws of physics, but who said there were laws? They're just commonality of of, of action a commonality of consequence that we have decided makes a law. So therefore, when we look at the miracles of Jesus and people say, well, I don't believe that because the, the, nature doesn't do that. Who said?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Right. But who said? You said because why? I mean, and in the end, when you look at the at astronomy, really to kind of stretch your mind, I mean, you look at black holes, Right, which is the collapsing of stars that is so dense that light doesn't escape. The hypothesis is if you were to enter into a black hole and you survive, you'll have a a reality, which is part of the universe that does not follow any law of we understand of physics, none. Wow. So then why are our laws considered laws in that sense? (laughs) Yeah. So you see the world, the visible and the invisible as being related. And you surrender and, wa- and wonder and awe and say, well, I don't understand all of this, but I know I belong here because God loves me. God created me. He loves all of it. Mm. Right? Yeah. Interesting, huh?
0: Well, let me ask you, we have just a few more minutes left yes. before we have to go to break, but let me yep. ask you, um, and so we have done ep- episodes on, in the past on the relationship between science and faith, which maybe we could mm-hmm. do more of, but um, you raised the possibility of life on other planets. Uh-huh. Now, I, I mean, so in, conceptually, could that be human life? And if it was, could it be
1: unfallen
0: human life? I mean, wha-
1: how... Oh, that's great speculation. Okay, so let's say we have to define, we have to make the disti- distinction between life and sentient life. Mm-hmm. So an amoeba is life, mm-hmm. right? But it stands in a different relationship to God than sentient life, because sentient life that is conscious, knowledgeable, and therefore has freedom is the agent, it would be subject to the offer of salvation. When the amoeba would receive it with the recreation of all things, however that happens, simply because of the goodness of God, it shares in the goodness of God. Now, could there be other sentient life? I would make another distinction. I would say it is more than conceivable, but it may not be human. So we are what we call now human beings. There may be sentient life that is not human. There may be sentient life that's not even carbon-based, like we are. I mean, considering that the universe, we may, there may be sentient life that we cannot recognize as life. Yeah. Oh, look at that rock. No, no, that rock is <laughs> You know, on a planet a, a trillion light years away. Right. I mean, again, it's our smallness. Right before God, yeah. now does that sentient life has that fallen, and does it need salvation? Um, that is a question that I cannot answer simply because I, I'm not familiar with what the what that could be. Yeah. But if it is incomplete, and more importantly, if it is in any sense sinful, it will need redemption. And that only comes in Jesus Christ. Yes.
0: Yeah. So, uh, uh, okay. Then, finally, before the break, what is, and you've mentioned this before, but maybe uh, you could uh, have a new one or the same one, Mm -hmm. just reiterate. What's a good book or documentary series or something that you could recommend to someone who might want to learn more? Science
1: Channel. Science Channel. Get it on your cable service or online. How the Universe Works it's, God, I I think it's maybe 15, 16 seasons now. Hmm. So there's got to be over 100 episodes. The one on the cosmic crunch was fascinating, which is, is there a possibility that the universe expands and then reverses? Oh. And that was proven so far to be inaccurate, that it will continue to expand outward. But yeah, it's just... And then, of course, you go the other way the other way the other way is not the expanse of the universe but the depth within so you're looking at the self-structure of humanity and the Mm. building blocks of all matter and the relationship between matter and light matter and energy
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so that would be it how does the universe work is i would recommend and it's very i mean it's not super complicated. I mean, if I understand it, anybody could understand it, it's not going to be <laughs> a difficult thing. <laughs>
0: wow. Awesome. Okay. So uh, let's take a break. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be right back.
2: The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org.
0: All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, okay, so uh, that space is a fascinating topic. We've got another differently fascinating topic here. Yes. Uh, on yes. June 29th, the Holy Father released an apostolic letter called "Desiderio Desideravi." Nice. Been, <laughs> well done. <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> There's. I can't do it a second time though. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, there 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 has been a lot written and said about this letter um, from very mm-hmm. many different angles, and so mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if you could just kind of give us some context and, and walk us through how, how we should
1: view this. Well. Uh, first of all, I would recommend that everybody read it, because it is a theological, pastoral reflection on the meaning of the liturgy, most especially the celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass. And I think it is the popes providing a larger context to last year's norms on regulating the uh, what we used to call the extraordinary form of the Mass. And what I found so compelling about the reflection is that you could enter into, with the Pope's help, the great mystery of what the Eucharist is and what it is in fact that we are called to do when we come to celebrate Mass. And in many ways, it helps us to understand, first and foremost, right, reminding us what the, the Mass actually is. So, in the Last Supper, which happened once in history, Christ, through, his, with, through the power of grace, initiates the Apostles the night before he entered into the one salvific act of freely offering his life on the cross, he allowed them through this sacred meal to receive a means by which they and all believers after them can enter into, participate in, celebrate the one salvific act of Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. So when we say celebrating Mass or attending Mass, what we're really saying is we have been given the extraordinary opportunity to enter into one mystery that was given to the world, entered into creation on Good Friday through Easter Sunday, and was uh, in, in many ways anticipated in grace at the Last Supper and through the sacrament that was born there allows those who were born 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, a million years after to enter in an unbloody way in the same mystery. Hmm. So what does it say in the end? The Pope says that therefore this celebration is at least two things we need to remember. Number one, it's the church's celebration, so it is the echoing of this mystery throughout time, and everyone who believes, who is admitted to this mystery, remember we call it the mystery of faith in the Eucharistic prayer, right? Mm-hmm. The consecrated bread, the mystery of faith. Then, it, so we enter into something greater than the priest, than the people, than the assembly. It's greater than all of us because it extends through all of history until Christ comes in glory. Right? There's not a moment that Mass is not being celebrated somewhere on earth in any given day. Then think about that for a second. <laughs> right? So the mystery is twenty-four hours unfolding, seven days a week for all I mean, unto forever until Christ comes. Yeah. So that's the first. That it is an ecclesial celebration in the true sense of the word, with Christ as the head. Right? So that's number one. And therefore, number two, there is a humility. And in an awe that you come to it. But there's uh, uh, a humility that it's not a possession. It's something that you're invited to enter into. And is meant to change you. Which we could talk about in a few minutes, a lot of how that happens. Yeah. But I think most Catholics forget that. Right? When they go to Mass. They go to Mass. What's going to Mass? I mean, what? Right? I mean, it's <laughs> in the end... It's it's you're you're being molded by a mystery. You're being transformed by a mystery. A mystery who is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That's what goes on. So every yeah. time you come to Mass, you're coming to Calvary. You're coming to the empty tomb. It's as if there was no history in between. Yeah. How many people do you know of see it that way?
0: <laughs> right, as a uh, yeah, as an obligation, even instead of a. uh I don't know, opportunity. Um, a, a privilege. Yes. It's a privilege.
1: Yeah, it's a privilege. I, you and know, just being there is a privilege. Even yes. if you don't receive Holy Communion because you can't for whatever reason, you still receive the spiritual graces. Yes. Right? That yeah. the Lord can give you by just being there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: The, um the, uh The Holy Father um, really has an ability to phrase things in such a beautiful way, Mm -hmm. and he has some really beautiful reflections on the Mass in this letter. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I I guess this is actually related to uh, our our previous discussion. He pointed out that um, modern people have lost the capacity to engage with symbolic action.
1: Correct. Right. Right. because symbolic action doesn't mean false action, doesn't mean make-believe action. Symbolic action uses a symbol, okay, an act, a ritual, something, as a vehicle for not only receiving grace, but affecting that which it signifies. So in a very literal, concrete, materialistic world, there are signs galore very few symbols. In theology, Hmm. and in the mystery of faith, there are many symbols and a few signs. So we make the sign of the cross. But when we talk about true symbols, then they invite us into a reality. They're like the, the doorway into a reality that they are, in a sense, the bridge to. But it's the reality that we're being invited to share. Yeah. So we use the symbols of bread and wine, all right, in the sacrifice of the mass. It's Christ's sacrifice of the mass that we enter into in His praise of the Father. So it's a prayer of thankfulness. We enter into Christ's thankfulness, right? But but that's not bread and wine. That's mm-hmm. the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, it looks like it, but it's not. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the crucified and risen Lord. Yeah. So, yeah, the, a person who doesn't believe just sees that as a sign. And, and sadly, there are some Christians who just see it as a sign. Even more sadly, there are some Catholics who see it as a sign. But it's not that. Yeah. It's not that. In
0: in, in the Holy Father's... Um, desi- correct me if I use any wrong terms here, but in his mm-hmm. desire to um, find unity in the Catholic Church mm-hmm. through the liturgy... Mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, we know that uh, a year ago he issued, uh, his Motu Proprio Tradiciones Custodes. Um, but in, 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 uh, Desiderio, he also, uh, seems to have concerns about, um,
1: Mundane uh, celebrations. Yes. Yes.
0: And reforms Mm -hmm. that have not been Mm -hmm. in the spirit of Sacrosanctum
1: Concilium. Absolutely. In other words, Many individuals find great solace and beauty in the what I'm calling the older form, the Missal of 1962, and the way it's celebrated. And rightfully so, because it's beautiful, it's transcendent, it uses um, chant and silence in very provocative ways. You enter into a sense that it's above the mundane and the material. Right? But the, the Novus Ordo, the common form of the Mass, can be equally transcendent, mysterious, beautiful, if it was celebrated correctly. Now, correctly doesn't mean that what we're doing is wrong. Correctly means doing what we're told to do, the way we're told to do it, with the full heritage of the church. Yes. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen in many places. It happens in some. And therefore, it's interesting. When you a person leaves Mass and they have been moved, what do they say? They don't say, oh, I was moved. Oh, I thought that was quite transcendent- tra- transcendental. Mm-hmm. What they say is, it is beautiful because mm-hmm. it moves the heart. Mm-hmm. So the Pope challenges right, the Church to say, when you go to Sunday Mass in the form that we have, if you don't experience it as something moving and beautiful, you have work to do. So in a sense, Steve, what we're talking about is that we enter, we enter, we participate in the unfolding of this, I'm going to say, this salvific symphony of love, this outpouring of the love of Christ in his irrepeatable, unique death and resurrection that comes to us by sharing in his sacred, real body, blood, soul, and divinity but we're not hampered by geography, we're not hampered by history, because we enter into it no matter where we are, and we add our voices to those who came before us, so the symphony literally is growing louder and more profound through the ages until we are in heaven when we do not need it anymore because we'll be in the fullness of love, healed and saved, redeemed in Jesus Christ. So we say, we say, I am going to Mass. Or a priest will say, I am saying Mass. What does that mean, really? The Pope is saying, no, 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 no. We are entering into, it. you're being invited by Christ into a mystery, this drama, the unfolding. And it, it, yes, you participate in it, yes, and you're supposed to fully, which is one of the points we'll get to, but it like, it just subsumes you. It just kind of like takes you up into it. So it's not yours. It's not yours. Whether you are a priest, a bishop, the pope, uh, a lay person, it's not your possession. Yes. You are being possessed by the love of Christ, not the other way around. Invited into the love of Christ, not the other way around. And part of what the correct of the pope wants is, you know, since the reforms of the liturgy, right? Some of the reforms, both on the, I'm going to say the left and the right, has reduced the liturgy to my possession or my preference, whether I'm the priest or the the faithful who attends. And no, 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 it's Christ's, right? So that's the first. The second point he makes, right, is the liturgy then is a place of encountering Christ. Now, How do you encounter Christ at Mass? So let's think about it. Certainly in the reception of his sacred body, blood, soul, and divinity. But how else do we encounter Christ? Uh, In the Word. Which also is a presence of Christ. One can actually say it is a real presence because Christ is made present really in the proclamation of the word, but it is different than the Eucharistic presence where you actually consume the real presence, not just spiritually, but physically, which we talked about already.
0: Where else? Uh, I guess in the um, community because we are the body of Christ?
1: With the mystical body of Christ. So now let's talk about that for a second. Right. Who's the body of Christ? All believers. Right? From the apostles. That includes every language, every race, every culture, every ethnicity. The fact that the liturgy has had over the centuries different ways, different for- forms, even now different rites It's not that one is the correct and all the rest are less than correct. Because the church is the body of Christ. So the Pope speaks of this incorporation into the living fullness of the worship of God in and through the church and that there's only one act of worship that is perfect and pleasing to the Father, which is the offering of the church right the mystical body of christ christ offering it over and over in the church in his body that this idea that somehow it's my possession or somehow it's my uh, subjectively it's something that i have to shepherd in a certain way right which can lead in, into it's all about the priest for example or that there's almost an authoritarian, he calls it a narcissistic or authoritarian elitism, that we're right and everybody else is wrong. He said, those are the clear signs that you have gone astray. Right? Yes. Now, the, the, I don't want you to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway for our, have you seen this? Have you seen this in the celebration of liturgy? I have. In fact, there are times in my life when I've had to fight against the subjectivism because it's a natural tendency that you want to engage people and therefore you are tempted, for example, as the celebrant, to try to be innovative or imaginative to try to engage people and that is a very slippery and very dangerous road to walk. Because then the liturgy becomes my possession, or my showcase, or my show, which is horrible. Yeah, yeah. And we all have seen it. Mm-hmm. Just and we've a, also I, seen, in, in recent times, the same. Anyway, what were you going to share? No, I was just so, going to say, just uh, a
0: comment on that, is that uh, it really makes a difference when you um, see a priest who is up there praying... The mass mm-hmm. and not presenting mm-hmm.
1: it. And how do you see the difference? Uh, it's
0: <clears throat> well. It doesn't. It doesn't look like a uh, like a presentation. It or almost. It almost feels like I don't even have to be there because the priest is praying this on behalf of the
1: church. Okay. So now the yes. pope would say, "Stop right there." Okay. Stop. Because the sentiment is correct, the language became okay. Yeah, right. right because yes. you have to be there. Yes. Because you are also offering the sacrifice through your baptism, not in the same way, not sacramentally. So you cannot confect the Eucharist. But this idea that the priest somewhere is praying on behalf of the whole church, mm-mm. Pope says that is incorrect. Okay. He is praying for himself. He is praying on behalf of the church, but the church also prays for itself. So, you know, we have some pastors in our diocese who have fallen into this COVID habit of not offering communion to the people. Oh yeah, and that has been corrected. That has to be corrected. Because I had a priest once say to me, well, the only sacrifice that matters is the one I offer. Wrong, wrong, and wrong again. (laughs) For all the reasons, because you are not the totality of the body of Christ. When would you get that idea from? <laughs> but it's that it's it's almost an authoritarian narcissism, or the subjectivism that says, "Well, it's my possession." No, it's not. Right. No, 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 it's not. Right. And the Pope speaks of amazement, doesn't he? So it's an interesting connection to what we spoke about in the first half of our, an amazement. Yes. Right. And the amazement comes from the encounter with Christ. So in the end, there has to be not just an intellectual engagement, but also an effective engagement. And there has to be a volitional engagement. So you have to be moved to be and do things because you have participated in this great outpouring right, of this redemptive love of Christ that comes to us through his body, blood, soul, and divinity and his word in the community and the priest celebrant, right? Uh, so the Pope speaks of the importance of beauty. And he says clearly that, you know, mundane, routine, uh, and I'm going to use the word, he doesn't use this word because he's too polite, awful celebrations of the liturgy are unacceptable. They're unacceptable. You know, uh, forgive me, and this is my judgment, and those who are listening may disagree, and I'm sorry, and they call me to task. But the fact that somebody thinks there's a value, that the mass could be celebrated as quickly as possible, makes no sense to me. Like, where are you going that's more important? Yes. Did I miss something than the death and resurrection of Christ? <laughs> now and I'm not suggesting we be there for five hours. But, you know, it, well, we finished in 32 minutes. So what was going to, what was the 33rd minute going to make any difference to you? Or the 40th minute or the 45th minute? <laughs> and I don't mean to be facetious, but it's the attitude behind it that the Pope is saying, no, 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 that can't be. Yes. Right? Yes. I, again, I would suggest to the people who are listening, it's, it is, we could go further deep into it, but I think there is really a very um, spiritually challenging exhortation that I think everybody has to consider. And he quotes uh, uh, Romano Gordini a lot, right? who helped form the Pope in his thinking. Right? And he speaks of the power of symbols, right, not in a way that symbols are meant in ordinary, you know, a symbol right, signifies the reality that it affects. And symbols are a profoundly important part of the liturgy because they engage the mind, the heart, and the will in different ways. The presence of the Lord in the Eucharist is not symbolic in that sense, right? It's real. Yes. But it's under the form of bread and wine. So it's not human flesh and bl- human blood that we're drinking. Right? It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the, of the crucified and risen Lord. But it's real. So from Article 48 on to almost towards the end, he talks about what he says the Ars Celebrandi, which I'm going to say is the, the art, the way of celebrating Mass, yes. both for priests, for participants who are the congregation, for those who assist in the liturgy, in the liturgical ministries, there has to be a rewaking, a a, a rebirth of the mystery of it, of the beauty of it, of the fact that it's not my possession, that it's not entertainment, that it's not engagement like you would on Broadway. It's a mystery that's supposed to captivate you and take you into the encounter of Christ. So gesture, words, silence, he speaks of the importance of silence. You know what I find is interesting, Steve? I have now intentionally, when I celebrate Mass, to the extent that I can, after Holy Communion, sit at my chair for one selfish reason and one liturgical reason. One selfish reason is, while everyone who has received Holy Communion has had the time to reflect, I have not. Because I'm giving out Holy Communion, so I'm being a little selfish in some way. But I need a few minutes to recollect on what just happened in my own personal life. But the second is to force everyone at a moment when everyone is at rest. For the body of Christ to reflect on the encounter we just had. And in many places that doesn't happen.
0: Yeah.
1: Or it's filled with the communion hymn, which is lovely. But there's no substitute for the silence where... And what I see is people become initially restless and then there's a silence. That's the moment of encounter at mass. That's extraordinarily important and it's there in the ritual. But how we celebrate, how often does it happen, right? Yeah. So he, he also then takes to test the assembly and he says, how are you going to have an encounter if you don't prepare minutes, many minutes before the actual celebration begins? How can you be ready for an encounter with Christ if you're arriving just as it starts or even late to the event, to, to, yes. to, to the mystery of the Mass? Right? How, how do you allow the graces to enter into your soul as your body literally starts digesting the Eucharist. If you're out the door, like a bat out of Hades, Mm -hmm. right? and off to where? I don't know where, wherever you're going. How many people actually prepare themselves in a way similar to the priest, who is going, has the sacred duty of preaching on the word? How many of us actually read the scriptures before you come to mass? So that you hear them in proclamation a second or third time. Right. So that the Lord can speak to you in his encounter. See, he mentions all that. And I think it is a beautifully appropriate challenge for everyone in the church to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Right? And in some way, shape, or form, you know what one of the takeaways I had from this was um, I remember as a little boy having a missile. Right? Because we were just changing over from Latin into English. And now we have the parish missals, you know, with the reading, but you can't take those home. Right. So, wouldn't it be an, an interesting gift in the Novus Ordo, in the, in, the, in the ordinary, what he wants as the universal form of celebration of liturgy? Wouldn't it be great if we went back to not because the, the, the Mass is in a different language, but because you could use at home to have everyone have their own missile yeah. in English so that you could read the sacred scriptures, just like a priest does with the lectionary, a few days before Mass and pray over them or reflect on them. Uh, I think that should come back as a usage for everybody. Yeah, Magnificat has that. Yeah, so exactly. If you subscribe to that, yeah. Exactly. Right, exactly. Or if you want your own that you're not disposing every month, then wouldn't that be a great Christmas gift to be able yeah. to give somebody, right? Yeah,
0: definitely. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's, uh, so now you've just boosted sales of uh, of missiles. Yes, of course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> With no personal gain, none, zero, <laughs> the record, Uh, but gain for everybody who does go and buy one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's take our final break, Excellency, and come back with a Mm -hmm. listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, this week's question is amazingly appropriate. How did I get this
1: way? It took a lot of work to get... No, I'm sorry, joking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was the question I was not supposed to read on the air. (laughs) Here's, Here's the question that came in. It says... If someone does not arrive on time for Mass and comes in Mm -hmm. after the Gospel reading or at any Mm -hmm. other point, is Mm -hmm. it too late
1: to receive communion? Okay. I remember as a child growing up that what was taught to me was if you have not, if you have, if you have uh, arrived at Mass after the proclamation of the Gospel, that technically you have not attended Mass. Now, it may sound very legalistic, but the, but the understanding behind that is the liturgy of the Word is the necessary preparation for the liturgy of the Eucharist. You encounter Christ in His Word so that your heart can become supple and able and ready to receive Him in the more profound moment where you literally are ingesting the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So, my question, my response back is, let's not take it from a legal point of view, let's take it from a a personal point of view. If if you have not yet been able to, if you have not prepared your mind and heart to receive the Lord in the Eucharist by missing that part of the Mass, why would you think you are ready to receive the Eucharist? Yes. Begin again, because it's not a possession to be received, it's a mystery to enter into and to be possessed by the Lord in that act, to be taken up by the Lord himself. So there are many incidences in the Gospel where people said, Lord, don't come to my house. I'm not ready. But I still have relationship. I still want you, right? And when I'm ready, right, then, Lord, I'm not worthy. that you come under my roof? Only say the word, my soul shall be healed. Yes. It's not really a question of worthiness. It's a question of your readiness to receive the graces that are going to be given to you. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And to your point, Excellency, and even before the break, you, you should actually probably not try to walk in just right before the procession. You should no. come a few minutes early so that you can really prepare yourself.
1: Because by the time you settle yourself in and, and, and take a deep breath and your heart rate drops, you're at uh, the homily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, actually, so I'm
0: glad Mary Ellen sent that in because uh, it actually brings up a, a question for me, if you don't mind. <laughs> Not at all. So a couple Saturdays ago, I was out exercising, and then I ran directly to the church uh, for confession in my sweaty t-shirt and shorts. And okay, we always dress for Mass: collared shirts, long pants, you know, long skirts, yeah. wh- whatever. Um, but so I guess I was standing there, and I felt a little guilty standing in the church, online for confession, all sweaty and grubby. I know I wasn't going to mass, but I was in the presence of the tabernacle, so am am I being correct in feeling that way, or am I being scrupulous?
1: Well, I would say this. Um, If the choice was uh, not to go to confession because of how you looked, I think you chose the better portion. I mean, if your natural habit is to dress appropriately for the encounter of the Lord, than in the rough and tumble of life. You, you encounter the Lord everywhere, always, in every place, in every moment. So I think you've chose the far better portion, in my estimation. Okay. Phew. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just, I won't I make it I think your habit. mistake was running. That was your mistake.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> <All right. laughs>
0: so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, please send it in to us on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And thank you, thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed and uh, to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org.
1: Excellency, what fun. Um, yeah, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We went from the universe to your sweaty clothes. What an interesting
0: (laughs) (laughs) combination. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. And
1: on that note, would you please give us your (laughs) blessing?
0: Of course.
1: In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we continue this time of summer, of rest, of recreation, and in some sense of rebirth, may your Holy Spirit bless us and bless those whom we love, those entrusted to our care. For we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Enjoy your week, my friend. Thanks, Excellency. You too.